Welcome to the fifth episode in our podcast series about the constantly changing nature of regulation in the cybersecurity world, all kicked off by incident reporting rules implemented by the SEC, an intense topic of much discussion within the cybersecurity profession these days. If you have listened to our prior episodes, our goal is to help chief security officers, chief risk officers, and those on the security and compliance teams understand why their world suddenly changed on July 26th. There was our world before July and our world after, and they are very different. In responding to the power of the SEC rules change, other things have changed too. The SEC is what I often refer to as a benchmark regulator, a body who, when they weigh in, not only change the landscape for those they directly regulate, but drives transformative change globally affecting us all. As goes the SEC, so go others in response to, or because they have to. This gives me pause for thought. Where would I go for reliable, professional insight into this changing regulatory environment if I were you? And as I thought about this, it was not an especially easy question to answer. So as a professional, how do I sort out all this stuff reliably and quickly? Let's turn our attention to some specific examples, a few of which are featured in the title of this episode. Some listeners may already be aware of FAIR, Factor Analysis for Information Security, or maybe not. While introduced years ago, this model has been evolving over time and, in fairness, no pun intended, it has both its critics and its fans within our profession, of course. But there are certainly some insights to be gleamed. If you are unfamiliar with its details, you can learn more at fairinstitute.org. The site features resources that explain their specific methodology. But spoiler alert, it's complicated. And maybe it should be, because the problem it is trying to address Information risk quantification is also complicated, of course. But factor analysis itself is not a new technique. It is a long-standing and powerful statistical modeling tool. However, its evolving application to security risk is new, making this targeted resource potentially valuable to anyone who is practicing. But also note this. For many cybersecurity professionals in the organizations in which they work, FAIR is almost too sophisticated and complicated a method to likely apply as it is at scale without some very significant effort. But it is also not clear to me anyway if the benefit of factor analysis can only be realized with this specific model, or if it's simply a technique to be applied along with many others as we move into this brave new world of measuring risk and results in concrete terms satisfactory to a regulator like the SEC. So maybe this approach could inform but doesn't likely immediately solve our need to move into compliance quickly if you are publicly traded. And that is the point here. I've seen a spike in calls from our clients asking if FAIR can provide the kind of insight necessary to deal particularly with the question of establishing materiality if a cybersecurity breach were to occur. And how might this model and its techniques help with that? That's a logical question to pose. And guess what? The FAIR Institute has started to try and unravel this by issuing tools related to creating a MAM, a materiality assessment model. And in the never-ending acronym game we all like to play as cybersecurity professionals, they are hardly the only source of insight into a particularly pressing question. Personally, while I find the initial work on the MAM interesting, 
By trying to force fit their previous model and its factors into a new use case for establishing materiality quickly and with certainty, I am less clear on its application in this instance than I was in the original measurement model. However, as a peer in the profession, I applaud this community for starting to think about how their world has changed as a result of the SEC regulations and trying to help us all think about that at the same time. If I was responsible for thinking through how to establish my own internal materiality assessment model, I'm immediately struck by an important conclusion. One size does not fit all. How can it be? Materiality, by definition, is contextual. Establishing measures of materiality and then studying their inputs to populate a model has to be specific to your organization, its scope, and its scale. So you're going to have to undertake that hard work, and while the fair technique or parts of that model may spark your thinking, and it should, it is unlikely you can adopt that model wholesale, as is to produce a replicable model to meet your own organization's needs. If you need this to stand up to the legal and regulatory scrutiny that it will have to in order to be effective as avoiding SEC enforcement actions, it is going to have to be tailored. Okay, so maybe not fair or only part of fair. So how about NIST 2.0 then? Maybe that is the answer because certainly in the past, there has been wide-scale adoption of this standard across North America to the point where it is essentially the de facto standard in the security profession to a large extent. Well, here again, the answer is both yes and no at the same time. I know, I know, not exactly the answer you were looking for, but here goes. Let's begin with the yes part of the answer. Using any controlled standard, which is what NIST is alongside several or other derivatives such as CMMC, CIS, ISO, PCI DSS, for example, they all provide professional insight into recommended practices and maturity levels associated with a particular application. In our case, that is information security. NIST was assigned this task by the U.S. government and published its first CST standard only in 2014. Not all that long ago in government standard time, but a lifetime ago in a field that's fast-moving as cybersecurity. And given that this standard is controlled by a government agency, it should be clear to all that NIST will, by definition, move behind the industry and not ahead of it. For example, the last update, 1.1, was issued in 2018. So while it's a reliable source of guidance or information on risk as a whole, it is not necessarily a source of innovation or the place to look for immediate answers to compelling, immediate, or changing conditions which we all face today. It can only confirm the value of a specific practice or help guide a professional to areas of general potential risk and mitigation. But it is only a source of dated confirmatory information. However, when it changes, it does have an impact on our profession. So what is changing? What might it signal to us all? And what is emerging that is important to our future practice? In considering the new draft 2.0 standard from that perspective, the biggest revisions that stand out for me in the new draft 2.0 CSF is the elevation of the governance function and its significantly enhanced requirements to measure security performance. As noted in a previous episode, this is forcing our entire profession away from measuring inputs, effort, towards a focus on outcomes, results. This is a shift absolutely in keeping with the similar stance of the SEC's new disclosure rules. Both the SEC and NIST as agencies of record 
are suggesting the same thing to us. Prove you know what you are doing by governing risk to within manageable tolerances that use means that are reliable and prove measurable impact. To accomplish that, we need risk quantification methods that demonstrate improvements in our risk posture over time, what we often refer to as longitudinal measurement. But this leads us back to our dilemma of the day and the very heart of this episode. NIST intends to elevate governance as a new requirement, and that seems to make sense and is following a general trend we are seeing globally. But the standard then offers little guidance as to the nature of the processes, tactics, or tools to be used to accomplish compliance. And this is what is frustrating about NIST to so many of us. It is able to tell us what we must do, but offers scant advice on how. So that is the no part of my answer. NIST 2.0 will continue to be important and guide us in some respects, but it will not immediately help us all to collectively figure this stuff out in the short term. So what now then? Reducing security risk has always been the stated goal of all that we do as professionals in this field. Yet the certainty of what really works to deliver these measurable risk reductions has not always been as crisp as it should be. In fact, it's been debated forever in our profession and is still open to interpretation. Let's be honest. We all did everything we could initially in the face of an overwhelming, ever-changing, and growing threat landscape, just hoping that whatever we were doing would work. That is understandable in the early stage evolution of any profession. Our collective professional body of knowledge emerges from the innovation of the few over time to become the standards for the many. Sorting out what does and does not work, including actuarial proof of impact that is sustainable and measurable, is very strategic work. Most of us were too caught up in the tactics to worry about driving the maturity of the discipline and the professionals who work within it to a higher level of maturity. But being an academic who applies scientific rigor to the study of cybersecurity, I'm impressed by the fact that both the SEC and NIST are finally adopting what academics have been saying for some time now. To prevail over the threats, the cybersecurity industry, that is the collection of vendors and partners working together on addressing this modern challenge, have to collectively hold themselves up to a higher and more measurable standard of achievement. We can no longer guess at what works. We have to know what works. And researchers within the academy and across disciplines like math, computer science, information systems, management, psychology, and the social sciences are often overlooked sources of new knowledge about leading-edge and emerging practices that can inspire creativity and innovation within the profession. I often tell my clients, thinking in our profession is almost more important than doing, or, put another way, maybe we should think before we act. Not that anybody has ever heard that mom and apple pie kind of advice in a podcast before, right? But I genuinely mean that as a profession, I do think we are entering a period where these regulatory changes are forcing reflection within the profession and perhaps a realization that we must drive this professional change for ourselves and for the good we do in the world and not just because regulators are forcing that change. So what to make of this discussion in the end then? Three points. One, there is no definitive source of one-size-fits-all advice on best practices in our profession yet. However, we can find a multitude of sources of reliable information about emerging techniques and practices to inform and guide us all towards potential methods and solutions applicable to our own specific organizational context and needs. 
Two, while vendors can help us with what we want to do, as a profession, we need more reflection about how and why we choose to do what we do. We need to isolate a body of knowledge, not vendor-led, about well-researched and provable high-impact practices we need to implement first, then look for enabling vendors. If we prove it to ourselves first, we can advocate for it with other stakeholders, such as executive peers, boards, and regulators, demonstrating it achieved measurable business results that matter. And three, that brings us to the new frontier in cybersecurity that is emerging everywhere. How are we going to use risk quantification techniques to improve risk governance and to help us apply risk-adjusted ROI calculations in support of number two? As we discussed in episode number four prior, we also need to improve our executive colleagues' willingness to rely on our expertise and accept our professional advice more readily. Because if we don't, the SEC suggests we may be putting ourselves as professionals directly into a risky situation of personal liability for organizational nonconformance. So we must all become more authoritative as a profession and rely on establishing actuarial proof of impact and a risk-adjusted ROI for our recommendations so that the resources organizations are pouring into cybersecurity actually work as promised. We need to show a reliable, demonstrable improvement in our risk posture. We must stop speaking the language of technology and instead focus on the language of business and risk. We must advocate differently in this new era. This is not as easy as it sounds, but we will all get there, perhaps kicking and screaming as we go, but we are going into this brave new world of proven results, whether we want it or not. To move us all forward, we must all learn to work together, regulator and those being regulated, to respond to what continues to be a dangerous and persistent business risk for anyone doing business online. And especially now that wherever we look today in our profession, to the SEC, to NIST or the Academy, there is a chorus of like-minded voices stating the same thing. It is time for our profession to grow up, level up, and put our money where our mouth is to deliver the proven measurable results so desperately needed to keep our organizations, our employees, our vendors, and partners all safer online. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This episode of iq for You was produced by me, Adam Dashu, with special thanks to our host and content developer, Dr. James Norrie. All rights for this podcast are reserved to CyberCon IQ, Inc. And you can listen to this podcast for free on any of your favorite platforms or by visiting us at cyberconiq.com.